Will you please remain standing for this familiar now Advent passage? We've been reading, though, these several weeks of Advent. Two passages so familiar in the Christmas story from Isaiah, the prophecy, and then from Revelation. Okay. From Isaiah 9. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a, a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born and unto us son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And from Revelation 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will have no need of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. The word of the Lord. I'm recovering from a little bit of a cold early this week, so if I'm you hear sniffling or coughing, that's that's what it is. I apologize for that. Um, thank you for reading, Allison. Um, let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Lord Jesus, uh, we ask now that you be present with us. That you draw our hearts and our eyes and our faces toward you. That you uh, put joy and hope in our hearts as only you can, that you would enable us, free us from the bondage of our false hopes uh, to lead us back to you. We pray now that you'd give us um, that insight into Christ, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we've been, these last four weeks, meditating on this passage from Isaiah chapter 9. Right, it's a deep well of a passage. There's a lot of things we didn't cover and we could continue to go on. But 
mainly I had wanted to spend these four weeks kind of turning around that, that phrase in verse 3 that says, those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That's where we started two weeks ago and we've had these, three weeks ago and we've had just kind of meditating on what that means. What does it mean that those who walked in darkness have seen a great light? And Jeremy, two weeks ago, kind of helped us think about the darkness that's within us, call it spiritual darkness, the darkness that is this shame that we have, uh, the guilt that we feel for not being what we're supposed to do, the, the lack of purpose. We get up in the morning, and you've often felt this, I'm sure, where you get up in the morning, you're like, why am I here today? <laughs> and you, we have that lack of purpose, a lack of value, where we feel like we're not valuable, like we don't belong, or loneliness, or this just the internal strife. And we, we see, and we talked about the way that we see that in our society, the way that we see that in ourselves. And we said that this passage in Isaiah points to the reality that Jesus is the coming Messiah is a wonderful counselor and an everlasting father and he's going to adopt us back into his family and we can be renewed in ourself. That was two weeks ago. And then last week, I talked about the darkness between us, this social darkness, you could call it, right? The darkness of oppression and injustice and corruption and evil. And we, and we see this. Now, this week, I was... I came across some stats on like, incarceration in our country, and it's astounding. You go read statistics about incarceration in America, and it will blow your mind. It's incredibly unjust right among us in our county, in our state. Injustice, and we see, you could stand, and I did last week, and we could spend weeks and weeks talking about the brokenness of our, of our society and yet we read in Isaiah chapter 9 that Jesus, the Messiah, will be a prince of peace, <laughs> prince of shalom, one to come and restore that and bring about a thriving city where people are related, we're relating to one another rightly and things are good and we have a healthy society. And tonight, I want us to look at a final kind of darkness that engulfs us, that's around us. I'm going to call this uh, material darkness or physical darkness. It's a good Good time to talk about this, right? Because two days from now is December 21st. It's the winter solstice. It's the shortest day of the year, the darkest day of the year. It's kind of interesting to me, I think kind of fun, that just the way that things work in our calendar, that this is the time when we're celebrating Christmas, right? We know from the songs that it's the most wonderful time of the year, and yet it's also the darkest time of the year, literally the darkest time of the year. When you come in here and it's like almost dark, and by the time I'm done talking, it will be dark outside, and half of you will be asleep. And that's okay. It's not, I don't judge you for that. I judge you, Gary, but no one else. Just kidding. No, but it's just a dark time, and there's almost like a little parable, I think, like an embodied parable that we live in during December when the days continue to get shorter, and we're marching on towards the brightest day of the year, which is also the darkest day of the year. It's like this really cool, like physical representation of the reality of Advent, which is about light and darkness. And yet it's this physical darkness that we feel maybe that depresses into our consciousness more than any other kind of darkness. And this is the brokenness of our relationship with the created world, with our own bodies, with the earth. We feel it creeping in, right? You got up this morning and I'm sure you had no aches and pains whatsoever, right? You open your eyes and you feel material darkness, right? That's what happens when you wake up. And, and there's a sense that we know, and we know from Scripture as we read it, that this is not the way it's supposed to be. 
Go back to Genesis chapter 1, and God makes everything, and he makes created stuff, and he says, that's good, and he makes this, and he says, that's good, and he makes this, and he says, that's good, and he makes all this really good stuff, and then he puts Adam and Eve into that goodness that is created stuff, and he says this to them, and you know this well. This is Genesis chapter 1. He says, be fruitful, grow, be fruitful, and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Produce things and have dominion, take rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves. And We see these two things that God says to them. Go into this like sandbox that I've made for you, right? My dad made me a sandbox when I was a kid and he built nice wooden walls around it and put a cover on it to keep the wall and the ants out. And then he takes the lid off and he says, go in and build whatever you want. And that's what God did. He put Adam and Eve in the created stuff and he said, go be fruitful and multiply have a harmonious, productive, creative relationship with the stuff, right? You go into the kitchen and you take the stuff and you have a harmonious, productive relationship with it that leads to dinner, hopefully, right? Sometimes it doesn't go so well, but we hope and we know the feeling of making a really good meal. You've had a creative, productive, harmonious relationship with your food. Or you go into the wood shop and you take raw material and you make something beautiful out of it. You go into the field and you plant things and they grow and food comes. It's, this is the way we, we sense that we want it to be and that it, it should be. It, I think is a really uh, just sort of moving depiction of this in a sort of pagan way uh, in The Lion King, right? This early scene in The Lion King, which is the circle of life song. And you just, you see the, the elephants are going along and the birds are like on the elephant's tusks. And there's just like, you can feel there's this harmonious productive, joyful, creative energy that happens between, and everybody's working together, the animals are working together, and, and they're singing the circle of life, that life is coming out of this, and there's this beautiful depiction right there in Disney of what the world is supposed to be like and what, what it was like, that, that things work together to produce life, and that's what we want. And I think for most of us, we experience some of that on a certain degree. We make good meals. We make things out of wood. We plant gardens, and we actually get tomatoes out of it, right? Like, we, we, we experience that, and yet, like on a day-to-day -day basis, if we're honest, there's sort of this cloud that hangs over our experience of, of those things, right? You know that time that you made a really terrible meal even though you followed the recipe? And you're like, this doesn't feel fruitful to me. This feels bad. Things are hard. It's hard to make good food. It's hard to grow stuff because... We, we find that in two, two big ways, instead of this unending fruitfulness of the world, we experience decay. Decay. Right? The, Paul writes in Romans 8 that the whole creation is in bondage to, he uses the word corruption, but it's the word decay. Things are tending towards non-existence. They're, 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 they're deteriorating. Science has a thing for this. It's called the second law of thermodynamics that the, everything in the world is trending towards chaos. You just put something in a place and leave it there, it's not just going to stay there, it's going to tend toward chaos, tend toward ruin and corruptibility and to be perishable. Like the world we experience is perishable. You go into the grocery store, I'm responsible for grocery shopping at my house. We buy a lot of groceries. And so I go to the grocery store and anything you pick up from the grocery store that's packaged, you know what it has on it? A Best Buy date. Best Buy, or these are very confusing. I don't know if you ever read these. Some of them are like best if used by, some are best if opened by, some are once opened, used within. Like there's all kinds of variations of this. And some of you are like the person that 
finishes using it two days before just to be safe. Then there's like the perfectionists that you're throwing it out on the day that it says on there. And then you're like me and you just you keep it in the fridge until you can't stomach eating it anymore because it smells too bad. <laughs> right, so I don't, I don't know what your relationship to these food labels are, but the food labels are a giant sign every time you buy food that's like, the world is decaying. If you don't consume this, it will go bad. Right, that's a little, it's a little parable of everything in the world. Things go bad. And I continue to be mocked for my car. Thanks, Lem. I have a 2005 Honda Pilot that is, I think, the definition of decay. I mean, it's just, it is decaying. And for like six months, I've been like, I'm really going to fix that headliner that's sagging in like eight places. No, it's just, you get in my car and everybody's got in my car like, you need to get a new car. It's, this car is decaying, right? You, know, you have a car, what do you have to do? You have to maintain it. Why? Because it's decaying. Like, you buy a house, what do you have to do? You have to maintain it, and it costs a lot of money and a lot of time. You have to put in new HVAC filters. You have to put in new water filters. You have to put in new plumbing. Like, you wait long enough, and you have to replace everything. Why? Because it's decaying, and it's just constant struggle. It's a fight to keep things at their peak performance because they're tending to decay, to rot, to rust, to mold, right? You just, things are going to decay. I saw an article this week from the New York Times. It was, a, it was like photojournalism from around the world, from different pictures and videos and things from every country around the world showing the, like, the, our human fight with the earth. Right? This is, I don't care about your politics on this. This is not what that's about. But if you look at pictures from around the world, you can see that the world itself is tending to decay. Like you see rivers overflowing and flooding stuff, or you see rivers shrinking up and water disappearing. Like you have one or the other. <laughs> you have desert that's creeping from one place to another and pushing people out, pushing civilization away. You have tornadoes and hurricanes and volcanoes, and the world is like angry at us somehow, and we're fighting with it. And this is, this is the struggle that we are having as humans, is to look around and be like, oh, we are at war with the earth. Or the earth is at war with us, and there's this struggle that we experience. Do you know what that is? It's decay. It's the world itself going towards chaos. So we experience this. Instead of fruitfulness, we experience decay. But the other part of this is be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. We're supposed to take dominion, to rule over these things. But instead of taking dominion, we so often experience futility. Like futility, it's the word that Ecclesiastes uses like vanity, meaningless. We experience the inability to take dominion over things. When I was a kid, my dad was given, I was probably four years old, my dad was given like four apple trees from a friend of his, and he planted them in the backyard. And year after year, he went out there and he, he cultivated the apple trees and he pruned them and he you know, trimmed them and he did everything. He read books, there was no internet back then. He read books, bought books on how to grow apples, and he, he did all the things. And you know how many apples I ate as growing up in his house? None. None. 17, 18, I still have never eaten an apple from one of his trees. That's futility. When my dad grows a lot of things. He's a really good gardener. And I came down to Charlotte and I was like, I'm going to be a gardener. He couldn't grow apples, but he could grow everything else. And I came down and said, I'm going to grow some stuff. And so I put a, built a little box in my backyard here in Charlotte and I planted some zucchini seeds. And five years in a row, no zucchinis. 
Right, one year I had bugs. One year I had mold. One year I had a fungus. One year it was no rain, right? It's futility. Like, it's really hard to grow stuff. I don't know if you've tried to grow stuff. It's hard. It's not supposed to be hard, but it's really hard to grow stuff. Gardening is war against the earth. Sleep, sleep is hard. This mind over body thing, that it doesn't work. I don't know if you've noticed that. You can't tell your body what to do because your body is decaying. Right? It's this, everything, we, your work is hard. It creates friction and pain and suffering. Ultimately, it's, the, the ultimate futility is that survival in this world is impossible. Right? It's impossible to survive, to come out the other side of your existence on the earth and be like, I won the game. You don't get to the end screen where it's like, congratulations, you get to put your name on the, on the leaderboard. You, n- you never get there. It's like those, sometimes I, I guess uh, it feels like a carnival game. You go into those carnival games, you know, the little booths, and you, you're trying to throw the, throw the football into the, into the little holes. You can get your tickets. So you can go and get a giant stuffed bunny, only to find out that the holes are smaller than the balls. And you're like, what? The game is rigged, and that's not what life feels like. Like, it doesn't matter what you do, you're going to die, right? It's futility. You can't achieve permanence. It's, this, this, is what, this is the whole book of Ecclesiastes struggling with meaninglessness. But this is over against Genesis chapter 3. It says, be fruitful and take dominion. We experience decay and futility. And in the Bible, in the biblical story, although people and their relationships with one another and with God take center stage, this decay and futility is always in the background. It's everywhere you look, it's like the backdrop, right? You see a movie and there's things happening, but the color of the screen and the lighting all sets the mood and the tone and creates an understanding about what the story is about and how you should feel about it. This is the backdrop of the entire biblical story as a backdrop of futility and decay. It's like in, in, um, in The Lion King, you have the, the beautiful pride rock with the, with the lions and everything's right. It's the circle of life. And then you look off into the distance and what do you see? Darkness. You see the elephant graveyard. When you read the book of Isaiah, you know what it feels like? It feels like you're in an elephant graveyard. That's what the whole book feels like. This is the backdrop, the light, the vibe, the feel of reading this book. There's this dark, shadowy, not circle of life feel, like decay and futility feel. And just, again, I could read a lot from Isaiah on this, but here's two, two passages, two verses, really. I'm going to read them in the message because Eugene Peterson uh, brings out just this evocative feeling. But this is Isaiah chapter 1, verse 7. I mean, you just, Isaiah is what, 66 chapters. Like, this is, this is the first thing you hear. Your country, Israel, is laid waste. Your cities are burned down. Your land is destroyed by outsiders while you watch, reduced to rubble by barbarians. Daughter Zion is deserted, like a tumble-down shack on a dead-end street, like a tar-paper shanty on the wrong side of the tracks, like a sinking ship abandoned by rats. The feeling, like, this is the scene of Isaiah. The backdrop is... The world itself is decaying. There's an amazing section in chapter 3 where Isaiah is talking about the women of Israel. And he says that they have been prancing around in high heels and tossing their hair and, and they have gaudy and 
cheap jewelry. But then he says this is what's happening. He says, instead of wearing seductive scents, these women are going to smell like rotting cabbages. That's evocative decay language, right? Instead of modeling flowing gowns, they'll be sporting rags. Instead of stylish hairdos, scruffy heads. Instead of beauty marks, scabs and scars. See the elephant graveyardness of this? The decay and the futility of the very physical space in which Israel exists is decaying. It's deep darkness. Like we are at war with the physical earth and the earth is at war with us. And as we live in that space of darkness, two false hopes have crept into our consciousness. Right? Part of what we've been doing here is trying to knock down the false hopes. And here's two false hopes that we often have attached ourselves to when we experience this. The first one is that we want to escape from the physical world. We hope to escape from it. This is sort of this idea that the material stuff itself must be bad. It's, it's broken. Like the, the, the hope is like someday I will be free of my body and free of this stuff and free of volcanoes and hurricanes and I'll be, I'll be free of that. I'll, I'll escape from it. And this is actually one of the oldest heresies. It's as old as the Bible. It's called Gnosticism. This view that physical stuff is bad. And many of us, maybe perhaps some of you have embraced this idea that our hope is to escape from the physical stuff. Escape from my body, escape from the pain, escape from the futility and decay that surrounds us. And the problem with that is that it's not good news. I, I couldn't, I was trying to come up with a good way to illustrate this, and I thought of this. You can tell me later whether this is a terrible analogy or not. But it's like if you go into a if you go into a steakhouse and you order a steak and it comes and it's a terrible steak. I mean, it's just it's got bugs in it, and it's just totally, I'm not, not like it's undercooked by three degrees, like it's bad, it's really, really bad, and you're, you're like, hey, I need to speak to the manager, and the manager comes out, and you say, this is a really, really bad steak, and he goes, oh, no problem, let me get that out of here for you, and he takes it away, and he leaves. You've escaped from your steak. That's not good news. You wanted to eat a good steak, not just get rid of the bad steak. And that's like, we don't want to just get rid of our bad bodies. We want to have good bodies, right? Good news would be not getting rid of the bad body, but having a new body that actually works. Right? So that is not good news. Escape is not good news. That's false. The other false hope is that we will defeat the darkness. This is the thing we've seen every single week, and this is so prevalent for us in our culture, that as humans, we can overcome it. I see your decay, and I beat it. I, food, milk, I see your spoilage, and I invent refrigeration, right? Farming, I see your futility. I invent genetically modified foods, right? Natural disasters, I see your decay and futility. I invent earthquake awareness systems, right? Like, we move in with this Humanist trinity, tr trinity of technology, education, and medicine. And we think that that holy trinity can help us to defeat the decay and futility of living in the world. Technology can overcome inefficiency and waste. Medicine can cure all diseases. I think I may have mentioned this in the first week, but just the whole stand up to cancer campaign is amazing to me. I think the sociology of that is fascinating. 
It's not that I don't hate cancer as much as the next person, but there's this false hope being sold that together we can defeat this cancer. It's like, well, well okay, well, what about the next cancer? <laughs> right? This is the futility and the decay of the world. One of the, I did mention in my original introduction to this series, the, the Theranos story, which is this uh, failed medical startup, and one of the ways that the founder of that company got people to buy into her company was using the phrase, no one should have to say goodbye too early. That was the phrase that she used all the time to kind of sell her blood testing device. No one should have to say goodbye too early. I'm like, what, what does that mean? <laughs> no one should have to say goodbye at all. Like, where, is your hope really so low that you're like, uh, you shouldn't have to say goodbye when you're you know, 68, but 69 is fine. Like, when, when does it become okay to say goodbye? It's this false hope that together we can make progress to beat back the material brokenness. And, and all of those things are good. Like, it's good to, for us, and this is part of our design by God, to invent refrigeration and genetically modified foods and be prepared for natural disasters and have to, those are all good things, but the mindset behind that if we're not careful, ends up becoming a deck chairs on the Titanic thing. It's great that we can, you know, stand up to cancer, but everyone's going to die of something. Right? So it's like, you, humans cannot overcome the greatest representation of decay, and that's death. So like we're, we, we can't defeat the darkness. We need to give up that false hope. Both of these things are false because, primarily, I think they locate the problem inside of the stuff, right? We're either war with the stuff and beat it, or we want to escape from it, but they, they both see the problem as the stuff itself. The Bible has a very different take on where the darkness comes from, right? It's not something you don't know. Hopefully, this will help you just think about it clearly, get it into your heart, right? In the Bible, we saw God makes physical stuff very good, but then because Adam and Eve rebel against him, God doesn't just allow them to die. He curses the very fabric of the created order. It's the fabric, the created order is good, but it's cursed. Right? What's a curse? A curse is this external supernatural power that envelops or sits upon it. Listen carefully to this language from Genesis 3.17. And there's a few different ways to get at this, but this is the clearest picture of it. Genesis 3.17, this is God speaking to Adam. And he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. That sounds true. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you, will, you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The easiest way to summarize that paragraph is decay and futility. Implemented by God himself. That it's, the created order is not bad, but it's under a curse. The curse of corruption and futility. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans 8, that the creation groans because it's been enslaved to corruption and it's experiencing futility. And maybe for you or even 
even for me as I think about this, and we're so familiar maybe with Genesis 3.17, but, but in our modern secular materialistic world, the idea of a curse is very hard to get your mind around, right? That's the stuff of like legends and fantasy and fairy tale. And so it's hard to grasp. And yet we do engage with this concept in fiction all the time. Have you ever seen any Disney movie? There's a curse in it somewhere. Every, every Disney movie is based around this kind of magic, if you will. I say that in the best possible way. I was watching, or my boys were watching Frozen the other day. Okay? And I've never seen Frozen. Sorry, Tara, I know you're kind of probably offended by that statement. Now, I've never seen Frozen all the way through. They were watching it. I sat down, and, and I'm watching the end of it, and I'm trying to understand what the heck is going on. And how many people have seen Frozen? All right, so you know Frozen. <laughs> What's the problem in Frozen? The world is under a curse, right? It's under the curse of winter. And I was like, I think I've heard this before. Right? C.S. Lewis wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where in Narnia it's always winter but never Christmas. Why? Because the world is under a curse. Like We're very familiar with this idea that there's something broken that's wrong with the created setting and there's no way to get rid of it except for an equal but stronger supernatural power to remove that. Right? Curses can't be fought or escaped or defeated. They have to be removed by an external power. If it's an externally put on as a curse, it, it can be externally removed. And that's part of the hope and the joy of admitting how bad the curse is and saying, oh, okay, now I get it. This has to be removed by someone. I can't. I don't have to struggle and fight and wish that I could defeat it or escape from it. I just need to believe that it can be removed. And this, it's hidden, more hidden than the other ones, but it's right here in Isaiah chapter 9. Because one of the four titles that's given to the child is the title Mighty God. And it's actually not a very common phrase in the Old Testament, Mighty God. But the word mighty always in the Old Testament, refers to physical strength. You have mighty warriors and mighty nations, and it's always referring to physical strength. It's a, a handful of times it's used of God, but always related to his physical acts in the world. And then the word here used for God, there's a lot of different ways you can say God in Hebrew. This one is the word El, which is a specific way to refer to God's creative power, his ability to create and manipulate stuff. And so right here you have the fact that the child is called the mighty God is this little indicator <laughs> that he is able to remove that curse of futility and corruption. Right? And you see that promise. We're going to look at this next week, but in Isaiah 11, two chapters later, it says, They shall not hurt or destroy. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is right after this description of the lion laying down with the lamb and of kids playing over the you know, the snake's nest, because there's harmony. It's the circle of life, not the elephant graveyard. Molly, can you put the Revelation passage up there? We've always kind of moved into this. I want you to see that the connection between the way that the end is portrayed in Revelation and the promise of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, and this is Revelation 22 is this beautiful picture of, of a city. We saw the, the kind of city, the, the societal side of it in chapter 21. But here you see a more graphical per, 
portrayal of the restoration of the created order. You have the tree of life, right, and it's producing fruit. And then you specifically have it say, no longer will anything be accursed, right, that the curse itself will be removed. And that's the hope that Isaiah 9, 6 gives us, that this curse, this futility, this corruption that we experience can be removed by a Messiah, by a coming one who will be the mighty God. I want to just end and recap this series a little bit. I'm going to get some help here from an Episcopal priest. I've been reading her sermons. Her name is Fleming Rutledge. She has a whole ton of sermons on Advent, and I've been reading them. And I just want to restate those three goals that I started with for this series. And, and I want you to take this to kind of be the takeaway for Christmas. We have all this darkness, right? But the first goal is to admit, to stare, to look into and admit the reality of that darkness. Right? To take an unflinching inventory of it, the spiritual part of it, the societal part of it, the material part of it, to really see and understand and grasp it. And Fleming Rutledge says this. She says, The authentically hopeful Christmas spirit has not looked away from the darkness, but straight into it. The true and victorious Christmas spirit does not look away from death, but directly at it. Why? Otherwise, the message is cheap and false. Or we have to look at the darkness. Isaiah 9, 3. People dwelling in deep darkness on them a light has dawned. As we look at that, the problem is that we are so captivated by those cheap and false hopes all the time. And so the second point of doing this series here, and the point of Advent, year over year, is to help us abandon those false hopes. There's a cheap comfort and sentimental cheer. There's nothing more accessible than sentimental cheer at Christmas time, right? Just feel good about it. And Fleming Rutledge says that sentiment, nostalgia, and optimism are weak, thin fuels. I love that sentence. Weak, thin fuels, sentimentality, optimism, and nostalgia. They're, they, they, they're not going to power you into next year or even to tomorrow. They're weak. In fact, as you probably know, I find optimism to be incredibly annoying. Just this like fingers in your ears, la, 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 it's going to be fine. Everything's fine. Friends, everything is not fine. It's not, okay? Things are not fine. The Browns and the Steelers are not even going to make the playoffs. Things are not fine. Golly. It doesn't matter what you, where you look. The facts are against us. The climate, medicine, politics, into your own heart, things are not fine. And you can't just close your eyes and hope that they will get better. That's optimism. W.H. Alden is a British poet. He said, nothing can save us that is possible. So good. Rutledge says, the human race cannot expect to receive any lasting comfort from the world. The comfort that we so desperately need must come from somewhere else in a burst of transcendent power breaking upon our ears from beyond our sphere. Abandon your false hopes. We need something better. But finally, the goal here is to actually be formed to hope in the real Messiah. Right? And hope is different from optimism. Hope persists in spite of the clearly recognized facts, not because it ignores them like optimism, but because it is anchored beyond them 
into something real and true. And that's what Isaiah 9 teaches us to do, is to anchor our hope in something beyond the present facts, that the very God of very God would become a child. They would become a wonderful counselor and a mighty God, an everlasting father and a prince of peace. To be a Christian is to live every day of our lives in solidarity with those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. But to live in the unshakable hope of those who expect the dawn. Fleming Rowledge. To be a Christian is to live every day of our lives in solidarity with those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, but to live in the unshakable hope of those who expect the dawn. It's only when we do that then we can come to Luke chapter 2 on Saturday and read, I bring you glad tidings of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, the Messiah has been born. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you entered into our space, into our physical world to redeem it, to remove the curse and that your blessings come as far as the curse is found. You are restoring things. Give us hope in it. Give us hope that our bodies, the very earth itself, will be renewed. That we aren't getting rid of it, but that you are coming here with your city and your kingship and your power to redeem and renew it. Let that hope be the thing that drives us. This Christmas, this week, this year. And as we do, Father, as we do each week, we pray that as we give um, gifts to one another, as we give gifts um, to you, as we give money to our church and to other organizations, that you would bless it, that you would further it for your kingdom, not as a way to redeem and restore the world here and now, but as a pointer to the great coming redemption of all things. We pray it in your name, amen.